now stand for the reading of God's Word. Our passage is Matthew chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. It's page 856 in your Red Pew Bible. If you didn't bring a Bible of your own, there should be a Red Pew Bible somewhere nearby if you want to hunt one of those up and turn to page 856, page 856, Matthew chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. We like for everybody to be able to see the passage as it's being preached. Matthew chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw the star when it arose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet was, has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search, and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it arose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place. His mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. <clears throat> Would you pray with me once more as we come to God's Word? Let's pray together. Father, we pause and still our hearts this morning as we prepare to come and to give our hearts and our attention to your Word. Lord, we remember all that you've told us about your word, that it's not just words on a page, but it is actually your presence and your power, and that what we're celebrating in this season is how the eternal word of God that spoke the world into existence, the eternal word of God that is actually God himself, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Lord, would you come and lift our hearts as we see Jesus? Would we find hope in all the things that we're facing, in all the burdens that we're carrying, in all the broken hearts that we are feeling this morning? Would we find hope, ultimate hope, in the person and the work of Jesus? Come and be our teacher. In Christ's name we pray. So here's a question, uh, young people, to get us started here. Um, so do you, you know, authority is a hard thing. It's hard to have authority in our life. Do you have any authorities in your life? What, what are some authorities in your life? Thank you, Amelia. Parents, yes. I like the way you said that. Parents, yes. Grandparents, there you go, absolutely, yes. 
Other authorities in your life. Zeke? Older brothers and sisters. Okay, wow. And you submit to that authority in your life, huh? No, not, oh, it's, no, not so much. That's right. Levi? Okay, all right. Wow, that's great. What about others that we have in our life? What about teachers? Coaches? Any other authority? Yeah. Session of the church? That's right, yeah. Authority is a hard thing. It's hard to submit to authority in our life. Um, you know, I've talked about this before. I, I certainly find myself in that. I, I struggle with authority in my life. Just full disclosure here. One, one, just one example of that is, and I've shared this example, but, you know, it's the referees. You know, I've, I'm, listen, I'm spending a lot of my time right now at basketball games. And it's like a constant reminder of my sinful heart. Because I'm sitting in there, and I mean, before, before I even notice. Are you blind? And then I'm like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Did I just say that out loud? You know, and, and people are kind of like, you know, looking away or whatever. And I'm like, oh, what is it about me that just is so frustrated that they have authority? Well, a pretty interesting thing happened yesterday. You know, I'm coaching Bo's little basketball team. It's his first year in basketball. And we had the jamboree yesterday. And, you know, guess who had to do the refereeing for the jamboree? The coaches. I had two games I had to referee. And can I just say, authority looks a lot different when you're put in that spot. Because, like, I'm sitting there, I'm like, oh, my gosh. Like, I don't know how to do this. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't want to mess up. And I'm like, I just know I'm going to blow a call here. And sure enough, I did. I blew a call. And the coach is like, what, are you blind? And I'm like, oh. So this is humble pie for me right here. And then Gray comes up to me afterwards like, Dad, you totally blew that call. <clears throat> There's something about all of our hearts that is so deeply resistant to authority. We don't like authority. Because authority is a threat to our own control over our life. And that is so hard. And we find ourselves in a, just a cultural moment right now where there's this huge backlash over authority. human history and there's this huge backlash of like throw off authority in our life but the reality is that's really deeply ingrained in all of our hearts it is so hard to have someone over us who has say over us someone who threatens the control that we long to have over our own lives and it's not just true in human relationships it's most deeply true in our relationship with God it is so hard to submit to God's rule and authority over our life. Now, you know, we talk about this a lot in our culture. You know, there's, it's, it's, it's very common to be spiritual. And most people would say, hey, I believe in God. But the God that we believe in in our culture, the most common picture of that God is a God who never questions us, who always affirms us and loves us and never contradicts us. But if your God is a God that never contradicts you, that never calls you out, that never imposes His will on you and, and requires our obedience, 
That's not the real God. It's a figment of our imagination. You know, we're, we're in a uh, series called uh, As Far As The Curse Is Found. It's our Advent series. And one of the things that we see there is that, uh, that the coming of Jesus was not just about the forgiveness of our sins, but it was actually about the transformation of the whole world. It was a, actually about reversing the curse that has affected all of creation. It's a huge kind of implication that the coming of Jesus and His kingdom means. And so, one of the themes that we see as we're walking through these passages looking at the birth and coming of Jesus is that He was a king. He was the king. He was the long-awaited king, the son of David, the one who would come to bring all God's promises to fulfillment and would fill the earth with the kingdom of God and that He would usher in worldwide peace. It's astounding, the, the Old Testament prophetic promises of what Jesus and His kingdom would bring in. But we see that theme that Jesus has come to reign as king. So here's what we'll see in our passage today. We find life and hope as we surrender ourselves to the reign of Christ over our lives. Let's look at our passage together. Uh, Here we are, we've been walking through the book of Matthew. We begin chapter 2 now. And... um, we have this picture in this passage which is really a contrast between two drastically different responses to the coming of Jesus as King. It's a difference and a contrast between the response of Herod on the one hand and his response to this new king who's coming to the world versus the Magi and their response to the coming of the king. So first, if we jump into the action here, we see that whenever Jesus was born in Bethlehem, this was during the time of King Herod. And Magi have come from the east to see this new king who has been born, and they have been following this star. Now, Magi, you know, it's, uh, there's different traditions and things around this, but, but literally in the, in the Greek, it's Magi. They're not kings, but they're like astrologers. They're Gentile astrologers, which in the ancient world was kind of a religious office. In the ancient world, in all the pagan cultures, so often people would look to the heavens, they would look to the stars, they would look for the things in the sky to help interpret what was happening on the earth. And a star was commonly a symbol of a king. And so somehow these Foreigners, these outsiders, these Gentiles have seen this star. We don't know how much they knew about the prophecies. We don't know how much they knew about who Jesus was in the coming of this king. But they knew enough to go through this tremendous journey to come and to meet this new king. But what is very interesting is they don't know exactly where he is. They followed the star. They've come to Israel and they come into Jerusalem And they ask this question, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? Now, when you ask a question like that, you are bound to alarm the actual king sitting on the throne. (laughs) Because you know what? There can only be one king. It's like the definition of a king. When you're a king, that means you are the absolute ruler. And so if you are king and you hear the true king of Israel has been born... Well, that's going to set off some alarm bells. 
And in a tremendous understatement, we learn here in verse 3, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. Why would all of Jerusalem be disturbed? Because they know something crazy is about to go down. Because King Herod was a brutal king. He was actually a puppet king that had been established over Israel by the Romans, who are the actual true rulers during that time of Palestine. And, and, and he was brutal. He was known for so many atrocities. He was mo- known for his paranoia, which was also common of ancient kings. It was a common practice for kings to just kill anybody who was a threat to their throne and to their, th- to their rule. King Herod did this many times. In fact, in the next chapter, we're going to learn that King Herod will order the execution of every child in Bethlehem under the age of two. Can you imagine that kind of atrocity? That kind of darkness. It gives us a picture of the utter bleak, you know, the bleak midwinter, the bleak darkness of the world that Jesus comes right into the middle of. And as we look, at, we look there at, he, uh, at Herod, we see this response to the coming of Jesus that is one of threat. You see, the coming reign of Jesus, Jesus coming as king, the one who has claim over the world, the one who will actually bring his kingdom, that is a threat to Herod and his kingdom. And that is his response, to be threatened to him. Now, it's easy to look at Herod here and say, ah, what a monster. And he was. And it's so easy to look at Herod and say, wow, what evil. And to imagine that evil is act actually outside of us. That's very common. If we're to ask the question, what is the root of evil in our world? We're going to have all kinds of different answers. But almost always those answers are something outside of us. Very typical to think the evil is something beyond me. It's usually the person who's my enemy. The person who has wronged me. You know, in our culture today, the true source of evil is authority. We find ourselves in a cultural moment where it's like anyone in power is seen as evil. And so our culture is saying, we need revolution. We need to topple those who are in power. The problem is those in power. But then others of us look at that and say, no, the problem is those who are wanting to throw off traditional morality. The problem is those Democrats, it's those libs, it's those Republicans, it's this or that. But the thing, is, the thing that's common for all of us is that we see evil outside of us. And that feels good. If we can look outside of ourselves and we can say, that's where the evil is. It's not here. It's a way of justifying ourselves. But you know what the Bible says? It says the evil, the real source of evil, is right here. And Romans is very clear about this. And it actually says... There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who seeks God. What? It says there is no difference between any of us for all, all of us, all of us in the same boat have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Paul will go on in Romans chapter 8 verse 7. He will go on to say that the flesh, the flesh, the sinful nature that's in all of our hearts is hostile to God. The actual Greek word there is enmity. It's an enemy to God. It resists God. It's at war with God. That's what's native to our hearts. And the verse goes on to say, it does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. 
That's the description of our natural hearts. We are resistant to God. We do not want God's authority in our life. We're, our hearts are by nature opposed to the claim and the reign of God over our hearts. Now, does that seem exaggerated to you? It'd be very easy to say, wait a minute, that's a little going a little far. Come on, I know some real evil people. I'm not the evil person here. Or maybe you're sitting here thinking, man, preacher, you're preaching to the choir here. We're in church. What are you talking about? We're enemies of God. No way. We're here. But here's the, here's the tricky thing about it. You know, the flesh can actually be really religious. And often was in the scriptures. You know, we can do religious things in order to get things from God. We can do good moral things in our life in order to put God in our debt. But the reality is, is given the right circumstance and the right situation, we're all capable of this. Each and every one of us in the natural state of our hearts is deeply resistant to the reign and the say and authority of God in our life. And I hope you can begin to see that in your heart. As we're looking at Herod, we're looking in a mirror. Because every one of us has got a little Herod living in our hearts. So that's the natural response. When we see King Jesus and we see his reign over all things, the natural response of our heart is to be threatened and to go the other way. But there's another response in here. And it's a tremendous response. It's the response of the Magi. That's what the whole passage shows us. It shows how they respond to the coming of the king. And we see it right off the bat that they have come from the east. They've come on a long journey. I mean, we can only imagine the expense of this journey, the difficulty of this journey. Probably would have taken months. Probably would have cost a tremendous amount of money and resource. There would have been danger on this trip. And yet they have set out determined to go on this trip and to be able to see the new king who has come into the world. And as they come into... Teachers of the law, the experts in the law, the people, the religious leaders of the day, and they know the right answer very clearly. They say, oh, we know where the Messiah is to be born. It's in Bethlehem. And they quote scripture. It's a chilling picture of someone who knows all the right answers. But here's what's stunning. They don't bother to make the few miles trip from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. No interest. But the Magi are eager to see him. And we learn in verse 10 that whenever they come to the place, they're following the star. It stops over the place where Jesus is. Now, here's what's interesting. In the Greek, it's actually four words. It says they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. You know, in the ESV and the NASB, it gives you a little bit more of that. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Matthew, why so many words? Why? It's kind of a way of like doubling what you're saying there. They were joyful and joyful and exceedingly joyful. Why does he say that? He wants us to get a hold of their heart. He wants us to see how affected they were. This was not some trip of duty. This was not just performing something that they thought was going to get them something. It was the joy and the delight of their heart that compelled them 
to come and see Jesus. And then in verse 11, whenever it says they came into the house where Jesus was and they saw him, again, the NIV says they bowed down and worshiped him. You know what the Greek says? They fell down and worshiped him. It's a slight difference, right? As we think about bowing down, I think about, you know, a deliberate movement of getting down on my knees. But to fall down is sudden. It's a picture of being so struck by the significance, the glory of who Jesus was that literally their knees gave out. They were overcome with emotion and with delight and joy. It's like, I think the Magi might be Pentecostal here. I'm sorry to inform us Presbyterians. They fell down, right? Folks, I want to fall down before Jesus. Because we're way too upright. We are way too upright. And I just wonder, oh, if we could just see, if we could just see His worth and His glory, would we fall down too? Would we fall down and worship him? I mean, just imagine for a moment this picture of these magi just falling before him in worship. And then the worship continues as he tells us in the rest of the verse, they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, incense, and myrrh. What a description. They opened their treasures. That's kind of interesting, right? They're opening treasures and presenting them to a baby. This wasn't a care package. This wasn't a baby shower here. They're like, Mary, here's some things that you might need as you're raising this new child. It wasn't about that at all. It wasn't about what he needed. In fact, he needed nothing because he owned everything. A baby owned the whole world. That's interesting, isn't it? He didn't need anything. So why this? It's worship. What a picture of worship. Matthew was talking about this earlier. We talk about it every day. You know, in the, in the middle of the service, we do an offering. We're not trying to raise money. No, 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 no. It's about worship. What, a, what an expression of worship. You know, in the Old Testament, that was the fundamental description of worship. When you would bring a sacrifice, something of value to yourself, and relinquish it before the Lord. That's worship. That's what they're doing here. They're bringing treasure And they're relinquishing it to him. It's a way of saying your value is so far beyond this. I relinquish this before you. It's a tremendous picture of worship. You know, you can always tell what is the prize of our hearts by looking at our checkbook. And we talk about this a lot too. Jesus taught on this. That really our our hearts are always connected to our treasure. And whatever your heart prizes, whatever you're worshiping, your money's going to flow to it. If you're wondering what your true treasure and Lord is, just look at your checkbook or look at your calendar, your day planner. It's just like the tail of the tape because our time's our treasure too, right? You know, we, we, we're always wrestling with, gosh, I don't have enough time. You know, it's hard to find time to get to church or to, or, uh, to spend time with God. You know, we're busy. Our lives are full of so many things. But listen... You will give your time and your treasure freely to what your heart worships. It's just automatic. So if you want to know what you're worshiping, just, just look at your checkbook. It's going to show every time. But we see the, the magi here is just like, it's extravagant. What a picture of worship. 
Matthew's holding this up to us and saying, here's what it looks like. This is what worship is. It's like the ideal picture of a heart response to Jesus when we really behold the worth of who he is. Matthew's saying, here, come into this. Follow the Magi. Tremendous picture of worship. Now, here's an interesting thing here. What's very interesting about this is who responds in what way. It is so interesting that the king of the Jews is threatened by the coming of the Messiah. It's a shocker. The teachers of the law, the religious experts, they know all the right answers, but they do not bother. Everybody sees the star, but they don't bother. They got other stuff going on. That's a shocker. We would have expected these people who had studied and studied and studied the scriptures to be waiting on the Messiah, but they had no interest at all. But who comes? The Gentile outsiders. Isn't that shocking? You know, Matthew wants us to see this. The people who are right next to Jesus don't bother. And the people who are far away come and bow down and worship. You see the irony of that? You see, it's a picture of the ministry of Jesus. You see that playing out in the ministry of Jesus. Is that the people on the inside, the people whose lives were all together, the people who are in church all the time, the people who had studied the scriptures, the religious people, they would not bother with Jesus. And in fact, they were threatened with Jesus. They killed Jesus. He was a threat to them. But those who you never would have expected to come to him, that was the people that had flocked to him. The, 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 the moral outsiders, the people who had blown it, the people who had just messed up their life, the people who were poor, the people who had no power, the people who had no money, the people who were Gentiles, those were the people that flocked to Jesus. It's a picture of the ministry of Jesus. And here's what it shows us. The ministry of Jesus, the coming of Jesus, is all about grace. It's all about rescue. And if your life is put together, if, if you are doing pretty well at religious performance, you're probably not going to see a need of grace. And if you don't see your need of grace, Jesus is probably not going to be that interesting to you. But if, because of the reality of your life, you feel your need of His grace and rescue, Jesus becomes beautiful. It's just how it works. So let's apply this to our life. Let's bring it home in our life. You know, it's interesting what happens in this passage. That God uses this phenomenon of a star. that's like a big symbol. That he hangs up in the sky. And the purpose of it is to lead people to Jesus. Which is always God's will in all the things of our life. You know, if you ever had that question, what's God's will for my life? You know, I hear that question a lot. I'm wrestling, what is, what is God's will? Where does he want me to go? What jobs does he want me to take? Who does he want me to marry? You want me to tell you God's will for your life? Okay, get your pen out. Get ready. All right? This is worth the price of admission. Here's God's will for your life. God's will for your life is that you fall more in love with Jesus, period. No matter where you go, no matter who you marry, no matter what job you take, no matter what kind of schooling you, tend, you decide to do for your kids, no matter all of those things, God's will for your life, no matter what you choose, is that you fall more in love with Jesus. It's always His purpose. You know, God is 
always bringing things into our life for that purpose. He's always hanging a star in our life to lead us to Jesus. That's the circumstances of our life. Bringing all this stuff in our life, usually it's like suffering, it's hardship, it's difficulty, it's trouble, because that gets our attention. But God's always bringing these things into our life for this one purpose. Light the star to lead us to Jesus, just like the Magi. But here's what so often happens. Man, we are hard-hearted, and we're stubborn. I know I am. And He brings those things into our life, and we say, you know what, I think I'm going to handle this on my own. You know, I think, uh, yeah, I could go to Jesus, or I can go into my own resources. And that's what we so often do. Let me go to other people to fix this. Let me go into my own resources and strength. Let me go to Dr. Google to figure this out. You know, we have all kinds of different ways that we are trying to manage life on our own. And we won't come to Jesus. You might be sitting in church and your heart won't come to Jesus. This is native to our hearts. You see, God is hanging that up. and He's saying, follow the Magi to Jesus. That's what I want for you. That's where life is found. So I just wonder, I just, I just want to invite you to be curious. What star is God hanging up in your life right now to lead you to Jesus? What would it look like to let that lead you to Him? You know, this week, you know, ready or not, Christmas is coming. And we probably got a lot of gatherings this week, and there, there might be some hard things ahead. You know, if you're gathering with family, that can get dicey, right? I can imagine there's going to be some stars hanging up in your life in the next week. What would it look like to let those things lead you and point you to Christ? To go to Him and worship in the midst of whatever is hard about this week? Let me just stop there and give us a few minutes to interact over that, to hear what's happening in us as we consider the Magi, consider our hearts, what's happening in you, how does it strike you. If you're visiting here and new, we do this weird thing each week. We talk about the passage at the end of the sermon. So it's just interesting thinking about the sin in our hearts, and then when you look at Jesus, he was initially brought gifts, and these people that weren't even necessarily Jews, you know, fell down, whether it was supernatural, you know, just knowledge, whatever, but, I mean, he was, he was king. Yeah. And then, the next we really see Jesus after his adolescent years, it's not a whole lot of good that the world really does to him. So, mm. it's, he's king, and then it's just suffering on mm. our behalf to yeah. his death. Um, and it's, I guess it's just interesting, like, in our lives or in, in my life, you know, there's times where Jesus will be king and reign, and, and I see that star, and I follow it, and I'm just like, oh, this is awesome. Yeah. And then my sinful self just falls back in and, and doesn't, you know, treats him as the opposite of king yeah. because I want that power. Yes. Um, so I just think that's a, I was just sitting here thinking, you know, that's such a, a picture of how we can treat yeah. Our Lord sometimes. Yes. Just thought that was an interesting one to share. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that, Jonathan. I appreciate what you're saying because I think, especially in the Bible Belt, we can have this idea that you're either 
well, you, you're either an unbeliever or believer, and if you become a believer, then like, that means you're always submitted to him. You know, so we kind of, re- there's, there's, no, there's no room for the struggle of the Christian life. Kind of this idea that once you're saved, you're just good. Even though we know it's not true of our life, we kind of feel compelled to live that facade. But the reality is, is that when we come to Jesus and his reign comes into our life, the little Herod's not gone. Like he's kind of knocked off his throne, but he's always trying to get back up on the throne. And so it's really a constant battle of this, who's going to sit on the throne of my heart? Is it going to be Jesus or is it going to be me, my flesh? You know, so that wrestling match is the walk of faith. That is the life of faith, you know? And, um, and so I think it's helpful that we see that because sometimes when we're struggling, we think, you know, something's wrong or I'm doing it wrong or whatever. And, and, and no, it's like Jesus is going to conquer all of that in our hearts, you know? It's just that he doesn't do it like that, you know? That's part of what makes the life of faith hard. This already but not yet. And it's kind of like that, you know, he comes as king, but the full reign of Jesus is not consummated until he returns. So we're kind of in this in-between wacko period. It's really hard. It's really hard to live in that already but not yet. Okay, that's perfect for my question. <laughs> so, um, I feel like the last year, the Lord's really... It's been a physical battle in my heart. And I'm just curious, like, have you felt, I'm just curious, um, and I feel like the deeper you get to know the Lord, the harder that battle is. Yes. Which is weird. You know, I feel like when you're up here, kind of, it's, I don't know, maybe you repent, you kind of go about, but like when you're really digging deep down into serious sin that the Lord graciously has revealed to me, yeah, I'm just curious, like, do you have a, do you ever feel physically like... And that may sound strange, but... No, no, absolutely. And I think the more that you pursue Christ, the greater the battle becomes. And, you know, Scripture talks about this a good bit. There's very encouraging passages like, for instance, uh, Galatians 5, where it talks about how the spirit and the flesh, which are both in the heart of a believer, they're at war with each other. They oppose one another. And Paul actually says, so that you do not do what you want. You ever feel like you don't do what you want? And the things you don't want to do are the things you keep doing. And the things you hate, those are the things you do. <laughs> Paul does too. And he says that's actually normal in the Christian life. And that, the more that you seek to be holy, the more that you seek to obey, the more that will be the internal battle to actually obey and follow him. So, in some twisted way, the inner war should be an encouragement. (laughs) Because if, listen, if you just, if there's no spirit in your heart going to war against the flesh, there's no conflict. You just do what you want to do without any inner trouble. The conflict is a picture that, oh, Holy Spirit is in me and going to war against my flesh. So, yeah, it's hard. That's what makes the Christian life hard. Hey, um, we've Hi. been talking a lot about this. So I'm, glad, I'm glad this passage shows very clearly the struggle between the world and 
the kingdom of God, which is what Jesus came down to, to show us. Yeah. Um, I think um, our experience is absolutely what you're saying, what Paul talks about. You know, you do not, I do not do what I want to do, but I do the opposite. Yeah. Um, that is our experience in this world. And I just, I think so often as Christians, we forget to remind ourselves of the, the reality of the freedom of the kingdom of God and what God, what Jesus preached, which was to set the captives free. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so our spiritual battle at war with what, you know, our old man, mm-hmm. the flesh that died with him on the cross. Yeah. And we're raised with him to walk in newness of life. Yeah. And everything that, you, that we've been saying is true, but yet that freedom, that's the good news. Yeah. That's the gospel. Yeah. And I don't know about you guys, but I need to hear that. Yeah. All the time. Yeah. Because that's what's really true forever. Yeah. And I think sometimes we, we live in our experience and forget that eternally this is the truth. That even though you die, yet you will live. Yeah. And that's what we need to remind each other. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I, it really is the good news that he is going to conquer all, all of the curse, all this broken, all of our flesh. That's what kings do. They conquer. They subdue. And um, that's what we're waiting for. The, the full and final victory. The conquering of the flesh in my sinful nature. The conquering of all evil. And... Um, so that's why Advent, you know, is about waiting and, and saying, Jesus, come back, not as a baby, but as a reigning king to bring your kingdom. I'm not confessing anything, but I just thought I'd throw out, um, there's a guy that did research on the Star of Bethlehem, and it's actually in a DVD. Um, if you can look up that on the internet and get it, it is remarkable how he unlocked the cosmos of all the things that happened that these guys in to go to Bethlehem. Mm. It's, it is absolutely fascinating. Mm. And it really kind of hits you like, yeah, he is the king of the universe, and the, the universe is a clock, and is completely at the right time Christ came. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, and the other thing too is, just throw this out here, that the wise men probably clued into what was going on because Daniel was taken away to Babylon and the Jews, and so a lot of people think historically that they had information about the Messiah coming through the Jews being taken in captivity. Mm, mm, that's interesting. Yeah. <clears throat> Sarah? I'll just share this briefly. I was super convicted when you talked about um, how easily you are able to share your time and your resources with what you worship. Because I think I had been so good about, I've like my whole life I've been really bad about doing devotions and you know, you do the, like the, it's my personality thing, but I had like gotten really good at it and Mark and I were talking as we've been doing our Advent thing that like I've really just been falling off of it and you know, I'm kind of like, I should probably do that. I should probably do that better, but I like really haven't and I think that that just really struck me as like, I don't really think that much of God that, you know, that it's like, I'm like, well, if Hopefully at the end of the day, if there's a little margin left, you know, and it, I don't know. I just, I know that cognitively, but I think hearing you say like, you are quick to give your, you know, like, yeah. like 
buying presents for our friends and families. Like, it's really fun. Like, I'm Would you now remain standing for God's word of benediction and blessing spoken over you as people? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Now go in peace to love and to serve the risen Lord Jesus.